Hello, and welcome to Label Sessions Presents. Label Sessions is a global platform that connects you to the best advice for the most interesting people. Whether you want advice, mentoring, or ideas. I'm Josh Nix, content producer for Label Sessions. And in this episode, Maxine Mackey of Label Sessions talks to Stuart Mitchell. Stuart is a tech leader dedicated to delivering clear, outcome-based, digital-first strategies with time spent as the Head of Business Development at Vodafone, launching 5G across the UK and more. Now, he's leading the charge at his own consultancy group, Nova, to push both companies, big and small, into the future. Over to Stuart and Maxine. Thank you so much for joining us today, uh, Stuart. We know you as an IoT and telco leader at Label Sessions, but perhaps you could take a minute to introduce yourself to our audience and share a bit of your kind of a career journey. Uh, absolutely, Maxine, and thanks for having me. It's a, it's a real joy to be here. So I'm Stuart Mitchell. My career, as you say, has, has been mainly within the IoT and telecommunications space. I've done that since the very tender age of 17 when I kind of entered my career at the, the rise of the smartphone. So it's been a really exciting kind of journey. Um, that started in, in retail for, for Vodafone. And then subsequently through through the years, I went on to their graduate program, spent half of my career living down in the south of England, working in internal commercial and go-to-market functions before taking the jump out into sales back in kind of 2014, 2015 maybe. And uh, yeah, it's been an exciting and fast-paced time since then. If we can maybe talk about your time at Vodafone for a minute, because you you mentioned you've had quite varied roles from, you know, in the latter part, head of IoT sales to global client partner and head of business development. It sounds like a really incredible journey where you've been able to have such kind of a breadth of experience. Um, for our listeners who might not be familiar, could you maybe give a bit, bit of an overview of where IoT fits into the landscape for a huge telco like Vodafone and other telcos. Absolutely, and and it has been a real privilege to be part of an organisation that really supports young people to kind of drive that diversity. And I, I I couldn't encourage young people that might be listening to seek out an opportunity to join a graduate scheme. It's an incredible opportunity and way of really getting breadth across the organisation and access to some people that you may usually and through the kind of normal hours and rules of work not get access to. So you learn a huge amount in a very short amount of time. And it definitely has been, you know, completely, you know, um, it's made a massive difference in terms of my career trajectory as a result of that. So definitely recommend doing a graduate scheme. To answer your question, what, what is IoT? Well, we've not got that long today, so I'll try and give you the abridged version of it. There's lots of definitions out there. At a very basic level, it's connecting remote assets. So anything that you could dream of, of connecting. So let's take a vending machine. We can stick some sort of connectivity into a vending machine, whether that's a SIM card, a broadband line or some other form of, of internet-based connectivity. And when you do that and you put some date, you know, a, a software into it, you're able to tell when it needs topped up with Mars bars or Coca-Cola or Iron Brew. That's ultimately what IoT is. It's about telling you something that you currently maybe don't know from a remote an asset. 
and that ultimately creates lots of efficiencies. So the example of the vending machine, you don't need to send people out in cars transcending the country. You know, that 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 costs a lot of money. It also costs a lot in fuel. So there's CO2 and ESG considerations. And actually it's just grossly inefficient. So by using IoT in that scenario, you can really optimize people's workflows and optimize people's journeys. And really that is kind of the very basis of, 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 of what IoT is. Um, IoT touches everyone. There isn't, there, there's over 15 billion connected IoT devices in, 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 you know, today. And that's going to grow by another kind of roughly 10 million. So kind of like a pretty, almost like almost doubling the size to 25 billion by 2030. So we've done a lot in the industry at the moment, but it's it's constantly evolving. And what I think the users might, all, uh, the listeners, sorry, might also be interested in is that over 10% of global VC funding is now going into IoT-backed companies. And we're seeing that massively in, in, in some of the, the relationships that, that I hold. And particularly in Scotland, we've, we've recently seen, you know, millions of, of pounds worth of investment from, you know, UK-backed funders, but also global funders over in the US in particular that are really seeing the value in, in investing. And, um, you know, general spending over $1 trillion is now spent, you know, in the IoT space. So it's incredibly lucrative. And I guess that's really why telcos are fairly focused on IoT. Um, it's a massive opportunity for them because of their heritage within communications, but also telcos evolving and changing. There's massive, you know, consolidation across the globe, organizations coming together through merger, through acquisition, some just, you know, leaving specific industries. So when you look at traditional mobile telephony or connectivity and methods and, and, and solutions, there isn't as much revenue or as much profitability in those sectors as there once was before. It's heavily commoditized. IoT is the complete opposite. Still pretty cheap to put a SIM card in something, but the value chain that you can attach yourself to as a telco is is really really exciting, and it's it's a it's a it's definitely a growth part of of most. Uh, telcos that I've I've been been privy to know. I'm curious that maybe some of the innovations and things made possible by IoT that you're maybe most excited by some new use cases, because it's interesting to think about how you think the future of IoT is going to develop, especially with this huge amount of investment coming into the space. I love to use a kind of analogy here, as it were, or a little bit of a, a, an old school story. So you remember when Henry Ford brought out the Model T. I think the phrase was, you know, you can have any color that you want as long as it's black. That is the complete opposite of what IoT is. So I often refer to Walt Disney, who once said, if you can dream it, then you can do it. So when I speak to organizations, when I speak to innovators in IoT or, or customers in the IoT space or considering a, a kind of move into the IoT space, I always say, you know, if you can dream it, then you know, you can do it, you can achieve it. And that opens up, you know, it broadens the horizons of any conversation because realistically, if we can build some hardware, we can connect it pretty easily. 
and then software and analytics off the back of it can be built as well. So really dreaming and achieving, you know, are, are, are definitely possible in this space, but there's also a kind of, you know, red flag in that that says don't do too much dreaming because if you do too much dreaming then you won't achieve anything either so you know baby steps into the market you know isn't it isn't as simple as i've just made it out to be but it's definitely where people should start and that's entrepreneurialism at its heart find a problem and try and solve it the 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 three top areas that i think are are really you know kind of important at the moment um, a phrase industry 4.0 is, is is being bandied around quite a lot. And I think if you look at the history here, we've been through, you know, three previous massive industrial revolutions. My history isn't that great. I, I did geography at school. So, you know, Google it and you can obviously see the kind of major kind of transitions from industry one to kind of industry three. Um, or 3.5 as some people talk about and we are very much on this cusp of industry 4.0 how do you define that? It's difficult I would say that you've got the implementation and the consideration of smart factories enhancing supply chain and logistics are key opportunities optimising manufacturing processes and I think listeners should be really focused on developing out a strategy in these areas because but then there's massive opportunity and it, there's real real growth and interest in, in those specific industry sectors. The buzzword of the moment is is AI, generative AI, any form of AI. And people won't be surprised to, to hear that IoT is, is underpinned by that. Um, and with 15 billion connected devices, the amount of data that you are realizing and downloading is uncomprehendable petabytes and petabytes of data every day is captured in in i and by iot devices the biggest failing of an iot project is that you actually don't monetize that data and it can be monetized across organizations um from the supply chain and the logistics to the fuel efficiencies that we spoke about in the first example Humans aren't capable of managing all of that data, so we need to be investing as an IoT organization and as a business, and you know, as an industry, on evolutionizing our use of AI to help boost the value that we can create from the data and the output that comes from those assets and, and devices. So that would be be second the second point, and and thirdly, connectivity. So as we've said, IoT is underpinned by connectivity. We we have traditional mobile networks. We have traditional fixed line networks with cables running through the ground and underneath our oceans, etc. Um, and we also have some private organisations that have come to the the forefront of the of the industry, like LoRa or LoRa One and Sigfox, among among others. Crucial, based in in Glasgow. And they're all doing some really, really great work in this space, but we need to continue to consider when you're going to remote locations across the world, whether that's the north of Scotland to places in Africa, um, to the to the poles, the north, the south, connectivity and traditional connectivity doesn't reach. And it also has capacity limitations. So as much as telcos are investing millions and millions of pounds, 
increasing the capacity. As consumers, our demands of, of that capacity are also increasing as we continue to live and breathe in a digital world. So when you think about 15 billion additional connected assets to all of the mobile phones and other devices that we use across a network, we need to consider that strategy quite, you know, considerately. And, and we definitely need to, to, to see more investment in, you know, privatized IoT networks and the use of satellite services and other dedicated systems that are going to help us really realize the benefit of, um, you know, what IoT can bring. And I think it's quite excited for some of those geographies you mentioned from the, you know, the, the highlands and islands in Scotland to areas to remote areas in Africa where they can essentially bypass the traditional cable network and benefit and go straight to the benefits of kind of a satellite connectivity. And it'll be interesting to see how we have shifts in like some of the like the social changes that will happen as a result of increased IoT devices and connectivity. Because I suspect people will um, move to more remote areas and there'll be shifts in the population. So it'll be interesting to see how, how some of those things um, develop soon. Thank you for sharing a bit of your kind of thoughts on IoT. I think that was um, really insightful. And also it's quite exciting about what's going to happen next. And I think that what, what, I'm, what I got a sense of is there's kind of a huge opportunities for people to kind of uh, use the data and derive insights from that. There's obviously a huge amount of money going in this space. I was really surprised that 10% of VC funding is in this this space. I think that's a, that's a huge flag. Um, to kind of a that we know there's going to be kind of a changes happening soon but let me ask you about some of your other roles at Vodafone because you kind of a, um you also acted as the global client partner and before that I think it was the head of business development um and you've been leading big teams who were kind of a responsible for for for, for sales and growth I'd love to kind of a kind of a demystify in a way B2B sales and 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 hoping you can do some myth busting for us um, and shed some light on what does because you've led some big teams in this space what does great B2B sales what does that mean what does that look like in 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 reality it's like I say it's been a really interesting and, and diverse journey B2B sales it doesn't need to be as complex as some people make it out to be. So B2B is business to business. So one organization who has a product proposition and service selling it to another. Um, I really enjoy B2B, enjoy it more than B2C because I think the, the way in which you can have conversations and add value and the way in which you engage in interest with a business is is dramatically different. Sometimes, actually, I feel simpler than trying to attract a consumer to your organization. Let me ask you about that. Does that, because my mind just jumped to, with B2C sales, I guess there's an emotional hook and it's people's own money they're spending, I guess, in, in a very simple way. So I'm guessing there's less of that emotional hook with B2B sales and actually... Is more of a logic-based argument. Am I kind of on track, or am I am I a bit skewed? No, no, absolutely. I, th I think you're right until it breaks, and then you know you've got a, a CTO or a, a chief technology, you know, a chief information officer, C CEO. Is anyone really just absolutely cracking up because their iPad won't work or their phone won't work or their you know their dark and their data centers went off? So 
that's when it does become quite personal because you know it has profound impact in terms of their ability to run their business so i, I would definitely say you're right it's it's less kind of emotional driven so branding is really really important in business to business but it's much more important i would say in the b2c world where the differentiation that you need to make is it's more complex you're not able to speak to every single customer in the kind of way that you are especially being a global client partner you're you're working with some of the world's biggest organizations those organizations typically know who the the big players are in in the technology space working for a company like vodafone i guess you you hold a huge amount of privilege being you know the most valuable brand in the, the uk um so ultimately you've got a really good reputation in principle which then becomes quite stressful right because when things break that reputational risk can become quite you know it can be damaged really quite quickly and and, and you know it takes a lot of you know resilience and kind of level-headedness to actually get through those challenges because you know we're not dealing with connecting someone's iphone in a retail shop here we're talking about ensuring that an investment bank can still trade we're talking about making sure that people can still take money out of an atm so there is always a consumer element to a lot of you know b2b sales and you need to be considerate of that for sure um so yeah it's it's it doesn't have to be as complicated as it is it is it as it's made out to be and i would also say that people buy from people right so as much as you're selling to a business and there's usually you know commercial ways of tendering for that business and, and ways in which you go about attaining that business one of the biggest feelings that i see is you know within the teams that i've managed is where people don't really get into the heart of that customer so you you know don't just stay within your lane don't just speak to the technology teams make sure that you are doing your research spending a day in the life with your you know the frontline teams try your best to get exposure to the other functions of the leadership team because it's going to give you that perspective of actually what does the technology do for the company what value does it bring and how can you potentially identify other opportunities to bring and add value so yet b2b sales is all about driving value you mentioned resilience earlier and like especially like when something goes wrong it's there, there's a huge impact and a, and, a, and a huge kind of a ripple effect if you were leading some really big teams at vodafone could you speak to your approach to supporting your teams and keeping them kind of a motivated and resilient when they they face kind of a setbacks or even rejection in the b2b sales world i'd say that my leadership style is very much agile so no two days are the same as a leader within the technology space and um, i can go from being authoritative to pace setting sometimes democratic and then when it comes to you know challenging situations it becomes a lot more of a kind of coaching and supportive leadership style so i think in the modern world you're never just one type of leader or you shouldn't be you should be able to wear multiple hats and you know be a bit more of a chameleon when it comes to the leader that you need to be in any given situation and moment my approach is broadly quite simple so it's always be listening 
there is a difference when you have when you're a first line manager you're pretty close to your team you're five six ten maybe twelve you know individual kind of contributors that work for you that's your that's your family unit that's your organization the big shift is when you become a second or third line leader and you're more distant from actually the cold face and that's really quite a challenge so i do my best kind of to try and get into those teams and not just listen to the department heads or the kind of sales managers but actually making sure that on any given you know day or week i'm phoning some of the team and to see how they are doing on a personal level that seems to be really well you know well received it means that i'm not waiting on feedback the feedback isn't um sensitized so you're really hearing how people are doing and it means that when they do have problems that they can come to me directly there's a fine balance if you've got you know when i was head of business development it was a team of close to 50. i i'm only one person with the same hours in the day as the next so i would error on or, or kind of error on the side of caution just flag it to say you don't want to be doing too much of that where your leadership team becomes ineffective they are still you know employed and you know kind of responsible for managing their teams but listening to what's going on across your organization is is, is super super important um and being hands-on as much as you possibly can within those challenging situations and it could just be as an escalation point into a different department when you work in big organizations FTSE 100 organizations there is a corporate hierarchy it exists it doesn't mean to say that it's a glass ceiling or that you can get the, the relevant level of attention but my experience is often when you get a head of or a vp to send that kind of escalation email it usually gets it ignites the fire quicker your challenge as a vp or a head of sales is to understand when you can do that and that comes back to always be listening because you every issue as much as that's super important to each individual sales, you know, global client partner or business development manager, whatever, it's not always the biggest issue that you're going to be dealing with. So it'll be super important to that person because it's their customer. Totally get that. It might not require or be, you know, the right thing to then escalate upwards. You just need to accept the process. And that's really challenging, right? Because when you've got a customer you know, breathing fire down the phone to you because their internet's not working or their phone's not working, which often happens when people go on holiday or roam into other networks, uh, you know, other countries, surprisingly. We just need to make sure that we're managing those situations on, you know, in a really sensible way uh, and not being disruptive to the general operation of the business. And I would say that that's, that's something that a lot of people struggle to understand so, you know, being, being empathetic, listening to their challenges and then trying to support them in the, the most constructive way possible, which is right for the business, but is also right for that individual at any given time. This podcast is brought to you by Label Sessions, the global platform that connects you to the best advice from the most interesting people. Around the world, we work with brands to connect their people to true leaders, just like the people you hear on this podcast, for live sessions of advice, mentoring, or sometimes to collaborate on ideas. To find out more, visit labelsessions.com and book in for a demo with our team. I think that this is so insightful, Stuart, because 
I'm guessing it's something that you get better at with time as well. And really understanding that not every fire needs put out, some will die out. And really understanding how to navigate with your peers as well as a head of, as a director, as a VP. It's an interesting balance. Um, I guess looking back to when you kind of stepped into those kind of second and third line leadership roles that you mentioned, if you could give yourself one piece of advice, you know, as you were stepping into that leadership role, what, what would it be? Don't be the person you think people want you to be. Pretty simple, right? But I, I would say that you, you don't want to lose who you are, what your moral compass is and what your personality is because those are the unique things that will make you a really amazing leader. Have you seen people do that? I've done it. And it comes down to self-confidence in a lot of situations. And I've seen friends and colleagues do it as well. It can be dependent on the role that you're taking on as well, right? When when I look at some of the roles that I've taken on, some of the businesses being in real growth and profitable, profitable those are really nice roles to inject yourself into because everything is kind of sunshine and rainbows and everyone the current is moving with you 100 percent. but when your house is on fire it's a completely different scenario and you know in my experience you can kind of become a little bit more self-obsessed of like oh god if i don't you know put these fires out and return the business to growth then i'm going to be a failure therefore your personality and your approach changes and that can ultimately uh, unconsciously then change your personality and change your morals and change how you act and deal with situations like you know i'm just going to escalate absolutely every single issue at that point in time because we can't afford to lose any business probably in my experience that that wasn't the right thing to always do because you then build a reputation of one, you don't, you can't manage your team. Two, you can't manage your customers. And three, you're resistant to following processes. And ultimately, you, I think what comes with age and what comes with experience, the more and more you do these roles, you, fires go out themselves. And if you follow structured processes, then usually it, it, it works itself out. Not always, but it, but it will do in, in the majority of situations. So, yeah. My advice is don't don't change who you are and, and take it slow because you're not going to know everything. You're not going to always get it right. You're going to make mistakes and, and you'll probably upset some people through, through, through the journey as well. But as long as you remember that you're always learning and that you're open to feedback and that you're always trying to be better. I, I love the, the 1% better every day scenario because I think the compound gain of 1% better every day makes, by the end of that first year, makes an incredible impact. And it's difficult because you're dealing with other people's lives, other people's source of income. Some people accept it. Some people don't accept it as, as, as much. But those are the experiences that will enrich your career and will enrich your journey as you continue to evolve into multiple different leadership roles. And lastly, I would say get a coach or a mentor. I've been really privileged to work with great coaches and mentors who play a different kind of role. A coach is definitely more of a, you phone them on the way home at night and you can cry down the phone because you've had a really, really bad day. And a mentor is much more of a structured personal development opportunity. Um, both are super key. And yeah, I think 
you know, just be kind to yourself. It, it, it's okay to for it to not go well all the time. It's not a reflection on you as a leader. It's just a reflection on experience. But don't change who you are. That's that's not going to be, you know, that won't end well for, for anyone. At times you've been um, quite a young leader at Vodafone and in, and in the organisations you've worked. Can we, I'm, I'm quite curious at what that experience has been like for you because I'm guessing at times you've had to navigate quite a lot of differences either in work culture and mindset between generations, especially when I'm thinking you might be leading teams that have maybe even more experienced members of the team. How do you find that juggle of of, of being a young leader? And maybe you can kind of uh, tell us what it's like. It's an interesting journey. It's a really interesting journey. And you learn a lot. I think it's the one thing I would say is is don't jump into leadership too soon. You know, enjoy the journey. And there's some great there's some great examples on socials around you know what you should do in your twenties and then your thirties and you know the subsequent decades of your career and journey. Um, they're pretty cool because I do think they offer you know some really interesting considered thoughts on when you should jump into any given rule and I was always a leader from kind of you know as a very young age you know being part of the boys brigade or being part of you know being a house captain at school etc I was always in these kind of leadership capacities football golf and stuff so it, it came very naturally to me and it was always something that I wanted to do early on in my career and I think that comes back to the feedback that you get, the personality type that you are, and just what gets you out of bed and what excites you. So, you know, for me, I, you know, some of those social posts didn't really because I was like, you know, I want to be a leader in my 20s because actually I get a lot of value from helping people be successful in challenging organizations. And that's just, you know, what I get out of bed in the morning for. Um. But I would also say, don't do it because you think you need to do it to be successful. The definition of success is often blurred. Um, it, it comes back to, I mean, how do you be successful as a young leader? I think it comes back to always be listening. You need to understand the people that you're working for, you know, and are working for you. And there's so many different variables that you can you can consider there, um, from you know diversity and diversity's changed and continues to change in such a, such a dramatic level as we welcome new generations, new identities, new cultures into the workforce. So, you know, you're not necessarily always going to understand all of those. You need to get to understand those, and you need to listen and. The, you can read everything that you want, but the best you know, the best value you can get when you're talking to your customers or you're managing your teams is by listening and asking some just really basic questions. So and what I'm hearing is around so how do we establish like credibility and influence as a young leader? Listen to people, listen to what they're saying, connect the dots of what they're not saying. Um, you've got kind of a I guess <laughs> Forgive me for being, I remember this from school. You've always got two ears and one mouth. So use it in that ratio. And I think what I'm also hearing is you don't have to try too hard. You can let let things be. 
because you're really as a leader navigating things and it sounds like you've been doing this from a young age in the sports teams and school things that you've done to your early career so it's come really naturally to you but I think it's what I'm hearing is this experience of um, letting things be and you're course correcting you're not forging the way ahead. Uh, absolutely and, and it, you know you don't need to hit the ground running when you look at people's career journeys especially CEOs I think it's really interesting because ultimately they are like almost like the North Star of leadership. A CEO will go through a series of time kind of zones, if you will, or kind of periods of time. The first 12, 18 months will probably be getting to know that business. So, you know, where are you going? Is the strategy right? Do you have the right leadership team? But it's, it's, it is that listening mode, you know, you're traveling. A lot of CEOs that I've experienced and, and follow online, they spend a lot of time when they enter that role, whether they're new to the business or not, frankly, going around, you know, the, the country or the, the world, spending time with multiple different parts of the organization, both that senior level and that kind of junior level to really gain that understanding and kind of, zone two or period two it's much more about change and implementation and then stage three is like execution and kind of you know taking the the kind of glide path upwards so i think it's really important because when you're a young leader and certainly in my experience it's like you know i think a year is such a, a you feel like it's a longer period of time than it actually is so you know, you, if you're fortunate to join a, you know, be, be a leader at the start of the financial year and, you know, the trading year, you want to achieve something by the end of that 12 month period. So you'll probably, and I think you'll miss things, you know, I would, as long as you're pretty transparent with your leadership team that says, you know, this is my like 30, 60, 90 day plan. And then, and I would always do a, a 30, 60, 90 by quarter for the first year. So I've got, a, you know, Q1, 30, 60, 90, Q2, the same, Q3, and then Q4, the same. And that puts out a very clear plan to my leadership team that I'm reporting to that says, these are the things I'm going to do in the time, in a specific time zone and almost kind of project plan it out a little bit so that there's no surprises. Um, Again, I think it comes down to the dynamic of the business that you're inheriting. Is it a growth organization or is it one that's in, in decline? If it's in decline, it's going to take longer to turn it around. What you don't want to do is to turn it around and, you know, like, just like turning a boat in the water. You don't want to turn it around into the, you know, right in front of an iceberg. You might want to think about, you know, navigating and readjusting the course, as you say. So, you know, it, again, there isn't, there isn't going to be a right answer for everyone. You need to really, if it's a new organization, get to know the organization, get to know the challenges, try and understand it, spend time doing that. If you're not new to the organization, don't assume you know everything. Make sure that you still kind of take a moment. Don't jump in with two feet without, you know, a life vest on. Just make sure that you're building a life vest, if that kind of makes sense. You know, you want to, you don't want to drown. You need to make sure that you've got, you, the, again, that you're listening and ultimately that you're building a really robust opinion of what's going on. 
I think the listening really informs decisions and then enables you to act on like when things happen, you can make decisions because you've got this kind of a breadth of context, which I think is really, um, that is really important. And I think it might be time for our quick fire questions, Chip. We're going to shift the pace slightly and shift our, um, what we're talking about. So we've spent time thinking, really talking about your career journey, but I'm interested in how how the mind of Stuart Mitchell works. So oh dear. if animals could talk, which species do you think would be the rudest? I've had to think about this long and hard. I think pandas would be the rudest. What makes you say that? I, I visited them at the at Edinburgh Zoo and I just got a vibe that they were incredibly rude. You did? Yeah. So I was glad to hear that got they're, it. they're heading home soon. So hopefully we'll... <laughs> Bye-bye pandas. Yeah. If you could only listen to one song for the rest of your life, what would that song be? Well, having two young kids, I really want to say Baby Shark or You're Welcome in Moana. But um, if it was my choice, um, big country music fan, it would be a song called Memory Lane by a band called Old Dominion. What is your signature dish that you cook to impress friends or family? Um, even if you're not a good cook, what's, the, what's your one thing that you'll make? I'm, I'm not sure you might be a great cook. I'm not making any assumptions here. I've not killed anyone yet, so that's a good start. Okay, that's not a great litmus test. No, no, no. Chicken Milanese. What makes somebody a good travelling companion? Spontaneity. In another life, what would your career be? I am a big Top Gun buff, and I spent a lot of time in St Andrews and in Fife, so watching the fighter jets when Lookers was still operational. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'd have to be a fighter pilot. That would have been awesome. Nice, nice. And um, what was the first work thing that you were really proud of? I was really proud to be part of the team that launched 4G to the market in the UK. So that was that was awesome. And lots of our lots of our recommendations were implemented in other markets. So yeah, I was super proud to to be part of that journey. Other, I'm thinking about what the best piece of career advice that you, you've ever been given. Does anything kind of a jump out to you? Absolutely. It's something that my late grandfather told me, and I'm, I'm delighted to share it with you today. Um, never underestimate the value of a handshake. You know, we live, in a, we live in a virtual world, so go out and see people and shake their hand. Give them a fist pump or an elbow pump, whatever's... <laughs> Last question, and it's it's something we ask all our guests. Um, on a scale of one to ten, how weird are you, Stuart Mitchell? I don't think that I'm very weird. I would I'd put down two. I don't think I'm weird. I'm pretty normal, if you can really define normal. Well, normal is a cycle on a washing machine. <laughs> Wonderful. I think that's a great place to end. Thank you so much for joining us today, Stuart. Thanks so much. Take care. So concludes another episode of Label Sessions Presents. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast no matter your platform of choice. And of course, start your journey today with us at labelsessions.com.